Well, let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this time to be together, to open your word, to have you speak to us. We're grateful that we have not been left without your word, that it is not a time in which the word of God is quiet. You are not silenced. You will not be silenced. You gave your word that we might have it and have it eternally. And so here we are to listen to it, open our ears to understand our hearts, to embrace it, and allow us to be transformed by its power. Thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we approach the worship of God through His Word, I'll ask you to take your Bibles and open them with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I know why you're saying, thinking, wait a minute, I thought we were in Luke. We are in Luke. We're in Luke chapter 3, and we are finding ourselves in the section in Luke chapter 3 whereby Jesus is baptized by John. And in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, it simply says this. Now, it came about when all the people were baptized that Jesus also was baptized, and while he was praying, heaven was opened... The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Those are astounding, those are authenticating, those are to use a term overused in our own society, awesome words. That information that we get from Luke is profound, it is shocking, it is thought-provoking, and yet when we read those words, we cannot help but have our minds flooded with questions that surround the very event itself. I hope when You open the Word of God and you read through the Scriptures. You aren't just reading the words on the page, that you are being provoked to think about what is happening and why it is happening. In order to answer the questions that flood our mind about this, we have to turn to other gospel writers, not simply because Luke doesn't tell us here by way of what he writes, but there is other information, there is other details, other facets to this event that is recorded for us by God's design through the other gospel writers. And so that's why I'm having us turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13 through verse 17, we have the same account, the same instance, the same happening. And the question that comes to our mind as we began to ask it even last, a couple Lord's Days ago when we were together and we were here, is first of all, why would Jesus be baptized since the baptism of John The baptism through which he was carrying out, according to the plan of God, was a baptism that was showing those before the eyes of people, those who had come to be baptized, it was showing a repentance and thereby a forgiveness of sins. 
We understand that Jesus Christ himself neither needed to repent nor did he need to be forgiven since he is God incarnate, since he is in fact God and he has never sinned. And so we answered our first question from Matthew chapter 23, and this morning we are returning here again to that very text. So I want to read these verses for us as well. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, <clears throat> says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus was answering and saying to him, Permit it at this time, because in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he per permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And he beheld a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now just like Luke, this is a very matter-of-fact statement. There isn't a lot of surrounding detail. There isn't a lot of surrounding commentary that goes on with what is written here by Matthew's hand through the Spirit's inspiration. It is plain. It is simple language. Even though it is relying on the details or relaying to us the details of this incredible event, an event which authenticates the very fact that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. This, of course, is the baptism of Jesus Christ. We understand what kind of baptism John is proclaiming. It is a baptism of repentance, a baptism identifying the fact of a need for repentance, a need for the forgiveness of sins. It was a baptism in which those who came to be baptized were making that public acknowledgement, just like we do here in our very own worship center, the time when we gather together as a family in baptism services and someone steps into the waters of baptism and we have them share the testimony of what God has accomplished for them by way of their own sin being forgiven and the repentance that took place, that they deserve the very due penalty for their sin, if God, by His mercy, does not and had not in Christ purged it away. That is what's happening when, a, when we see baptism. Each and every one of us here is just like those who came that very day. Except for one. Except for one. Jesus Christ. If we were there in those days, we would have been doing the same thing that these people were doing. 
Why? Because they are recognizing their own sinfulness. They are recognizing their need for God to deal with the issues of life that they cannot deal with in their own heart and why they cannot find themselves to be obedient to the one who has created him. They understand the due penalty of death. They understand the reality that before God, their sinners do eternal separation before his holiness, unless by his mercy, he would forgive their sin. But not Jesus. Jesus needed none of that. Why? Because he is holy. Because he is undefiled. Because he is separate from sinners by way of him being sinless. And so Jesus at this baptism is an anomaly. It is a strange thing. It is an awkward thing. As John clearly in his own testimony here tries to withhold it from happening in the event itself. He tries to prevent Christ. For Christ to come to be baptized by him was a, was a thought that was out of his mind. It would not happen, humanly speaking. Jesus is an anomaly on the human side of life. John knew that. And so we began to understand that last Lord's Day. John tries to prevent it. Jesus would have no such prevention take place because his baptism must fulfill all righteousness. What is he saying? What what does he mean by that? What, What is all righteousness saying? Well, it's simply to say that Jesus Christ's obedience to the will of the Father was fulfilling that righteousness. It was fulfilling the reality of righteousness in seeing it. And in doing so, it was one of the authenticating events that proved He is the true Messiah, just as He identifies with us in our humanity, the sinner Jesus Christ is being authenticated as the Messiah, at the same time identifying with us the sinner, even though he is sinless. We had no sin to repent of. It was the Father's will that he be so identified with each repentant sinner that his full identity would be known And on the cross, the sinner could be identified with Him. Christ identifies with us in the full sense in our humanity, and thereby we can be identified with Him in the full sense in His death on the cross. I think the words of the Apostle Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians is helpful to us, or 2 Corinthians, helpful to us when he says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, a very familiar verse to us, and yet when we think of it in light of this, it, 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 it seems to help us with our understanding of this whole transaction and what is taking place in all of this. The Apostle Paul said, He, that is God the Father, made Him who knew no sin, Jesus. By the way, when it says He made him who knew no sin. It doesn't mean that God was making Jesus as if he was creating something. 
God, this is a transactional verse in the sense that imputation is taking place in this verse or being seen as taking place in this verse. He made him who knew, who wasn't intimate with sin at all because he had never committed any sin at all. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. God transferred the sin of us to Jesus Christ. The imputation of our sinfulness was brought upon Christ. God the Father transferred that, made Him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that, here's the purpose, we might be the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus came and said, you, you must allow this, John. We, we have to do this. Why? Because in doing this, we are fulfilling all righteousness. God made him who knew no sin to be that, that reality of sin so that we who were the reality of sin could be the reality of righteousness in him. That would only take place because He is righteous. Jesus Christ, the sinless one, coming, identifying with us, the sinful ones, the unrighteous. And so John permits Him to be baptized and immediately coming out of the water, two other significant events take place which authenticate His full identity. One event is visible, the other is audible. Verse 16 gives us the visible event. It authenticates Jesus as the Messiah. It involves the Holy Spirit. Verse 17 gives us the audible authenticating event. It is the voice of God who pronounces satisfaction with the Son. Two more authenticating events in Luke's gospel, by the way, as we study that, we will notice them. There's the baptism of Jesus, which authenticates him to us by way of identifying him to us and the righteousness of him in his messiahship. But also there are two other events that authenticate the reality of who he is. One is the authentication that he is fully human by his genealogy that we will see next Lord's Day. And the third one is by his temptation, which will follow that in Luke chapter 4. By the way, there is this parallel reality of the Spirit and the voice of the Father in the other Gospel accounts which speak of the baptism of Jesus Christ. In Mark's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel, you have this double authentication going on, if I could say it that way. The Father is there, the Spirit is there, both authenticating the reality of Jesus Christ. John speaks of the baptism of Jesus, but it is a bit more detailed, not really of the actual baptism event like we see here in Matthew and Mark and Luke, but more so about John as they inquire to him about who he is. So here in the baptism of Jesus, we have all three persons of the Godhead involved in what I believe to be both the authentication and the ordination of Jesus Christ to His public ministry. Over the years, I was thinking about this idea of ordination. Over the years, I've had the privilege to be a part of several ordination ceremonies. 
Each of them is intense. Each of them is a process that ends in this special event that we have called ordination. What does ordination mean when we think about that? Ordination means simply this, the act of being set apart to an office, the act of being set apart to uh, a, a ministry. Primarily, it's used in Christian ministry, the, the, the act of setting someone apart to the gospel ministry. That is what ordination is. In Christian churches, it's an event and a dedication commissioning those who are there for that ordination unto pastoral ministry. And the essential ceremony normally consists of some kind of public examination of those who are going to be ordained, and then the laying on of hands of the leadership of whatever church it's part of that would lay on the hands, pray for that person as they were being ordained and asking God to use them and to use their giftedness and to let His grace shine upon them in carrying out that gospel ministry. So it's a grueling process in which those who are to be ordained have to show a knowledgeable work of every theological subject that is out there. So if you ever pick up a theology book, they're about that thick normally. There are some that are smaller, but they're helpful in some ways. But the thick ones, you have to have a working knowledge of everything that goes in one of those systematic theology books. You have to have a knowledge of the entire Bible by way of chapters and verses and, and, and outlines and those kinds of things. And then you have to have a working knowledge of be able to explain the Scriptures practically on issues of life that deal with spiritual issues. It's a grueling process. Not everybody passes. You can go in my office sometime and look at the certificates on my wall. And of course, I have a certificate from the, from the seminary, graduating seminary. And while that was a great accomplishment, I have a greater higher esteem for my ordination certificate than I have for even my master's degree. Why? Because it was a far more grueling process. Well, this, beloved, is Christ's ordination ceremony. And while there's no testing of his understanding of what the Word of God says, right? No man could test God on his understanding of his Word. God fully understands everything about his Word. No man could rightly test Christ, even though you see some of the Pharisees try to do that from time to time. In fact, you see even Jesus being led here in Matthew chapter 4 out into the wilderness to be tested, but not by man. He's being tested by the powers of hell itself. But also you see the divine approval and acceptance of the Godhead with Christ. And so our text says in verse 16, after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw, that is speaking of John, John saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove coming upon him. So here we have, in, in one sense, if, if, if this is the ordination of Jesus Christ, and, and I think it's appropriate to see it that way, here we have the laying on of the hands of the Godhead, the setting apart of Jesus Christ, to the ministry with which he has been called. 
In fact, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah when he says in Isaiah 42 verse 1, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This is God, the Godhead, fulfilling the very thing that they had said through the prophet Isaiah concerning the justice and the the salvation being brought to the nations. It was Jesus Christ that was the fulfillment of that prophecy. It is Jesus Christ bringing justice to the nations. And it is a justice that we all deserve. A whole lot of talk going on in our day and age about justice. A lot of things we hear in our society, particularly here in the West, about justice. And it's always identified with some kind of adjective. It is social justice, or it is uh, racial justice, or it is other some other kind of adjectival justice that is being talked about. But it isn't righteous justice that we hear about. No one seems to want to talk about righteous justice justice. It's cries for man-made, man-pleasing, man-edifying, false kinds of justice. All men deserve righteous justice. Why? Because the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. So God would bring justice. And the justice that He brings is in His Son, the perfect servant of God. So the heavens here are ripped open. The heavens are are ripped open, not by something on earth, but by God Himself. That's the sense of the original language here. This isn't some small event happening. It isn't as if God is simply just saying, hey, let me open the door and see what's going on. That's not what's taking place. This is God purposefully and willingly making access for those He chooses to save, to be drawn to Himself through His Son. This is the beginning of that ministry. The heavens are ripped open. Jesus is baptized. The Godhead, in their collective sense, places their collective hands on the head of Christ in confirmation of this ministry that He will be embarking upon. I was reading this week several commentators. One put it this way, quote, Just as the veil of the temple was torn to symbolize the perfect access to God for all men, so heaven Here the heavens are torn open to show how near God is to Jesus and Jesus is to God. I think he's right. When the heavens were ripped open, Jesus and John see the Spirit descend. It descends like a dove upon Him. Doesn't that make you wonder? The language of the Scriptures adds in these little phrases and these these words that that add understanding and give a, a greater flavor to what is being said. He saw the Spirit of God descending. That would have been enough. We could put a period there. He saw the Spirit descending upon Jesus. Okay, great. 
but it says, as a dove. As a dove. Every word of Scripture is God-breathed. Therefore, there's something being told to us here that's more than just curious detail. And so our, our interest is piqued. First, why would Jesus be baptized at all? Right? This is a baptism of repentance and forgiveness. We learned about that. It's to fulfill all righteousness. But now... Our curiosity is piqued again with this question. Why would the Spirit come upon Jesus? I thought, Jesus is God. Why would the Spirit of God come upon Jesus? I believe there are two primary reasons. First, we've already alluded to this, but this is the ordination of Jesus Christ. This is the setting apart of Jesus Christ to His earthly ministry. This was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. In Isaiah 42, I put my Spirit upon Him. And so this, in, in, the, in, a, in a sense, is the anointing of Jesus Christ. In fact, Luke chapter 3 in verse 22 says, and when Jesus was 30 years old, He he began his ministry and he was immediately sent out into the wilderness, right? says that after it gives the whole genealogy up to verse 38 and then chapter 4 starts, he's sent out into the wilderness. Here we don't have the genealogy, we just have what happened after that, right? Jesus was 30 years old. Well, the anointing of a king, the anointing of, of someone to an office typically happened at least in Jewish times when they were around 30 years old. So this is the anointing ceremony, if you will anointing of Jesus Christ. But the apostles also preached about this anointing. Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 21, Jesus is in the temple, and He reads from the Isaiah prophecy. He reads from the scroll of Isaiah, and He reads this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, which is Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And then he sits down and he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So the Spirit coming and resting upon Jesus was his anointing. And his anointing was his ordination into this messianic office in which he was fulfilling. So Jesus speaks of it. Peter, in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, confirms the reality when he preaches and says, God anointed him, who? Jesus of Nazareth. That's who he's talking about. God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. So when we look at the baptism of John and we think about Jesus Christ coming up out of the water and the Spirit of God coming upon him, it is fitting for the Spirit to come upon Christ in order to fulfill what God has said would happen with Jesus Christ and to come upon Him descending as a dove, or as it says in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, in bodily form like a dove. In other words, this was to be the confirming sign to John the Baptist that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. You say, how do you know that? 
How do you know that this was the confirming sign to John the Baptist and why the Spirit came down both to anoint Christ as well as to show John that Jesus was the Messiah? Because John's gospel tells us that. John the Baptist says to those who inquire of him who he is, in chapter 1, verse 33, he says these words in John's gospel, and I did not recognize him, it wasn't that he didn't recognize him as his cousin Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He said, I didn't recognize him as to the reality of his office and what his office was. I've been told to look for this, and I've been told how I was going to recognize it, right? I didn't recognize him, but he who sent me, who sent John the Baptist? God did. He was commissioned by God. Right? Through the prophecy, through the, the message that Gabriel came and gave to Zacharias as he's in the temple. <clears throat> this is exactly what Gabriel said. And John says, I didn't recognize him, but he who sent me, he's talking about God the Father, the one who sent me to baptize in water, said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon Him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Why like a dove? Why would the Spirit come down like a dove? Well, we can't be all that dogmatic about it, but every Jew would have equated a dove with sacrifice. Every Jew would have understand this idea. The dove was a bird of sacrifice. Every year people came to the temple. They came to sacrifice for their sins. Those who had means would bring a bull from their herd. Those who had, were maybe a little less fortunate would bring a, a lesser animal. The lamb would be brought. Most people, because most were poor, would bring turtle doves. That's all they could afford. And so through the coming of the Spirit in the likeness of a dove, as it says here in Matthew 3.16, I believe that Jesus Christ is being anointed to carry out His ministry, which was to be Him as the sacrifice. His was a ministry of death. And so here is the Godhead in this miraculous event whereby Jesus comes to be baptized as the people are, are being prepared in their hearts for the reception of the Messiah, as it says earlier in Luke's Gospel. And here they are coming, and Jesus comes, and John says, no, no, I can't baptize you. This isn't the kind of baptism. I know. Who, I, I have an idea who you are. Jesus says, we must do this to fulfill all righteousness. John permits him, and immediately the Spirit comes upon Jesus like a dove, anointing Christ, ordaining Christ as the sacrifice. This is his ministry. He was the one to be sacrificed for the many. Secondly, however, it's appropriate for the Spirit to come upon Jesus because... Even though when Christ became man in his incarnation, uh, stick with me here, when Christ, even though when Christ became man in his incarnation, and he was in that incarnation still fully God in every way, in his humanity, he's being anointed 
for his earthly service and being given strength to carry out that service by the power of the Spirit. Let me say that again. Even though Jesus Christ in coming in the incarnation contained and remained fully in his deity, in other words, he's fully God, and yet at the same time, in his humanity, fully man and thereby God anoints him with the Spirit in order to carry out the human service by the power of the Spirit. That's simply to say that Jesus Christ is like us in every way, yet without sin. Without sin. In other words, like you and I, in His humanity, Jesus was equipped with the power of the Spirit to accomplish His ministry. Jesus, in His humanity, was equipped with the power of the Spirit to accomplish His ministry. One man rightly said it this way, God never summons to duty without supplying the necessary power. That, beloved, also was true of Jesus in His humanity. And so right there you have this mystery, this mystery of the union of the God-man right? The union of divinity with humanity is right here before us. Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, fully human yet fully God, and that union together seen before us as the Spirit comes down upon Christ. How the divine nature and the perfect human nature works in unison is a mystery I personally cannot explain. How does all that work? The only answer I have is I do not know. But I know this. It is true that Jesus is fully the God-man. I know that. And I also know that Jesus was given the power of the Spirit to preach and teach. We know that He was empowered with the Spirit to heal the sick and to raise the dead. And as we will see in our study of Luke, the Spirit empowered Him to withstand the assaults of Satan himself as He was tested. Jesus does not accomplish the tempting in the wilderness without the Spirit. God the Father had ordained him to die, to die an undeserved death on the cross for sin. And God the Spirit empowers him to accomplish all that was necessary for that without fail. There's a question that we can ponder. And I was thinking about this this morning. I said, should I ask this question or not? And I'm going to ask it. And maybe I should not, but I'm going to. Was God, Jesus Christ, incarnate Son of God, able not to sin in His humanity? Or was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, not able to sin in His humanity? 
Was he not able to sin or was he able not to sin? That's the question. I'm not going to answer that for you this morning. I'm going to leave it there in your mind so that your minds go. So why was Jesus baptized? Because it fulfilled all righteousness. Why was Jesus anointed with the Holy Spirit? Because it empowered and anointed him for his sacrificial service. Finally, notice verse 17. The voice of the Father authenticates the ministry of Jesus Christ. And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We wouldn't know the voice and whose voice it is had it not been for God telling us, This is my beloved Son. Because all the text says is, A voice out of heaven says... That could be any number of voices from heaven were it not told to us exactly whose voice it is. And immediately upon reading it, we know this is the voice of God. This is the Father. All of the Trinity, all of the Godhead is involved here in the baptism of Jesus Christ. And the final aspect of Jesus' ordination is the approval of the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Literally, in the original language, it says it this way. You are the only Son of mine. You are the only Son of mine. The beloved one in you, I am completely satisfied. According to the language of the Old Testament, in the passages where sacrifice is spoken of, for a sacrifice to be satisfactory to God, it had to be what? It had to be perfect. It had to be without blemish. In order for God to declare it satisfactory, it had to be an unblemished, an unspotted sacrifice. In fact, an untainted sacrifice was so serious to God that in Malachi chapter 1, verse 14, God declares through the prophet Malachi this, Cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord, because I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. You bring an unblemished animal, you vow your your best, you vow the unblemished one, and you bring a blemished animal, God says, cursed be you. So it was very serious to God to come before Him with something that was less than what is acceptable to Him. And in the Old Testament, the whole sacrificial system was set up simply to be a shadow of what was to come in Jesus Christ, that He would be the unblemished, perfect sacrifice. And so the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was, was an accommodation by God for a purpose. It was an accommodation which, which highlighted sin, highlighted the necessity for a sacrifice, and yet the sacrifice couldn't really take care of the sin in any kind of permanent way. 
He could only cover it for a time until the next time a sacrifice was needed according to the law. So it was a picture of what was needed to atone for sin in a permanent way, yet could not do it by way of means of the earthly way. So there had to be a death that occurred, a death of an unblemished animal for sins committed. And yet the blood of an unblemished bull or an unblemished goat or an unblemished dove, even as good as they were by way of comparison to the rest of the flock that were labeled as blemished or spotted, if you will, they were still never perfect enough to remove the penalty of sin. The writer of Hebrews reiterates this when speaking about the superiority of Christ when he says this, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So even the unblemished animal that was come, that was sacrificed at the right time in the right place and for the right reasons was impossible even for that to take away sins. But God says here of Jesus Christ, this is the Son of mine, the Beloved One. In Him I am completely satisfied. That is simply to say there's no need for another. And because there's no need for another, therefore, the pre-pictured death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is seen right here in the baptism of Christ. It is the death, burial, and resurrection seen right here, even in the baptism of Jesus Christ. His baptism looks forward to the sacrifice that He would make. His baptism is pointing forward to that day when on the cross He would shed His precious blood, the blood of the Lamb of God, unblemished and spotless. It would be the blood of the incarnate. That's why the Father could say with approval, I am well pleased with you. God the Father had, in essence, examined the sacrifice, examined His Son, His only Son, and He would offer Himself as a sacrifice for the sins of all who would ever believe. And no imperfection could be found. And so the Father declares for all to hear, I am well pleased with you. Why is that significant to us? Why should that be significant to us? Because, beloved, the only reason God can be satisfied with us, the only reason that God could justify us, could declare us righteous at all, is because through faith in the Son, we are so identified with Christ that the Father delights in us through the Son. It's the only way. By God's divine grace, God sees no imperfection in any who have repented and trusted in the Son. As amazing as it is to sit here and look at the baptism of Jesus Christ and to be 
overwhelmed by the reality that here is the Godhead all in unison declaring about the Son just exactly who He is and what He is about to accomplish. It is overwhelmingly astonishing to me that God would look upon the Son and attribute that reality to me. No imperfection. Why? Because I believe upon the Son. Listen for a moment to the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 1. Words that ought to ring in our ears on a regular basis as we think about our life in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, so that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. You see, in Christ, in unity with Christ, because of who Christ is, we have all that God could ever give us. We have all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ because we're unified with Christ. Beloved, we must understand fully that Jesus Christ is the fullest view of God that we will ever have this side of heaven. When we look at Jesus Christ, we are looking at the face of God, for He is above all things. He is the perfect manifestation of God incarnate. He is the exact representation of God's glory, the exact image of God The Bible tells us that in Him all the deity of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. This is God on display. And so it is because of His deity that we worship Him. It's because He is God that we come together and we worship Him. No one can can truly worship God unless they worship Jesus Christ as God. Those who say, I believe in God, I I have a relationship with God, surely I'm going to heaven because God would never send me to hell because after all I believe in God and yet they have no relationship and no belief in Jesus Christ at all. I, I can rest assured with them with a sad heart that they are on their way to hell deceived. Because unless you embrace the Son, you do not and cannot be accepted by the Father. Jesus Christ 
the one who was set apart that day in the Jordan River, authenticated as the satisfactory one before the Godhead who came to carry out his ministry as eternal king, perfect sacrifice. All of the Godhead is there. John the Baptist is there, and he's proclaiming to all who would hear, there he goes, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus comes out of the water, and all of heaven rejoices. Spirit descends, the Father speaks. And the very next instance that happens is that Jesus is led by that very Spirit who came upon Him, God the Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Praise God, He didn't fail the test. He's authenticated by the Father and the Spirit. He'll be authenticated through His genealogy and through His testing. There's no one else you need but Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, there's no one like Jesus. No one like Him. There's been no other baptism in the history of the world whereby You spoke from heaven concerning that very person. The only baptism You spoke at was the one of Your Son There's no one like Him, no one comparable to Him. We thank You, Lord, that we have a true Savior. One who was fully satisfied the demands that You require by Your justice. One who has been declared satisfactory so that we know our sin is fully and finally dealt with in Him. It isn't intellectual noise in our heads. It's not just mere words. This is Your Word. The truest of true words. You declared it. It is so. I pray we trust it. Impact our lives and our hearts and our minds by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.